there are a lot of SAR resources, uh, but mostly are related to hazards. And particularly for forest monitoring and uh, biomass estimation, we realized that there is not a catalog or something that you can easily look and find that information. So we took this work uh, of uh, synthesizing and putting together all the scientific knowledge that has been created over the years in something that is more digestible for the remote sensing community. Hi, I'm Stephanie Tomampos and you're listening to Down to Earth, the show where we talk to incredible geoscientists about their science, their careers, and their passions. Today, we're examining pixels to get the bigger picture of remote sensing. Support for Down to Earth comes from the Inspire, Develop, Empower, Advance, or IDEA Committee of the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers Geoscience and Remote Sensing Society. The IDEA Committee is devoted to empowering engineers and scientists from diverse backgrounds to follow a career in geoscience and remote sensing. One way they do this is by pairing established and emerging geoscientists through their Women Mentoring Women program. In this year-long mentorship, careers blossom and friendships are born across generations, disciplines, and geographies. To learn more and become a member, visit grss-ieee.org slash community slash idea. Everything that we do in Servir comes from freely available information and observation data that is uh, freely available. This is Africa Flores. She's a research scientist at the Earth System Science Center at the University of Alabama in the United States. As you heard, she also works with Serbir, a joint NASA and USAID initiative that has been operating around the world since 2005. Serbir's goal is to help countries use air observation data for environmental monitoring. And uh, we try to use open source code as well. Um, so our solutions are scalable and are accessible to everyone. Because Serbir focuses on open access data and solutions, the launch of the satellite Sentinel-1 in 2014 was a huge boon for them. Except, as everyone knows, Synthetic Aperture Radar, or SAR, is incredibly difficult to work with. Uh, I read that you, made, you co-authored a uh, handbook on SAR imagery. So, I want to ask, why is SAR widely used, but still one of the hardest satellite images to deal with. Why is it like that? It's been there for a lot of years. I know. And that's, you know, the same question that we have. It has been out there for so long and why we are not using it that much. And it's because it's so difficult. <laughs> that's one of the factors. And the other one was that it wasn't freely available. And then we have Sentinel-1, uh, like finally, right? And uh, something that is operational, uh, that it has uh, the same sensor characteristics to allow you to do historical analysis. Uh, because another thing that we learned actually in the preparation of this book was that even though you have this data since the 70s, the configuration of the sensors was different and uh, it makes it difficult, particularly for someone that doesn't have the background to work with SAR, you know, to be using all these different data sets because when configurations are different, you need to treat the data differently. The processing is different. And uh, if you are not an expert, how do you know about that, you know? So there are a lot of barriers. We, we saw so many barriers in making operational use of SAR data. 
that's what drove us to to work on this that and the fact that uh, we not only have sentinel one but uh, nasa is uh, planning a new mission together with the indian space agency nisar that is going to provide freely available SAR data in L-band as well. And we didn't have, you know, that's coming in the near future. Someday we will have it, <laughs> have been waiting. But uh, and we didn't have the preparation and the, the experience to work with that data when it becomes available. Why SAR? Why, what's special about SAR? Well, as you know, uh, SAR can penetrate clouds. Is an all-weather uh, data, and that's something that we face, one of the major challenges that we face when we are trying to monitor the different ecosystems uh, around the world is cloud coverage. And even with the high frequency of optical data, there are some areas that are constantly cloudy and that we cannot see the processes, what is going on there. And the second one is, um, because the nature of the information is also different. In summary, what we are looking in as our image in amplitude over the surface is a, a structure and moisture. And those are two different characteristics, two different variables that we don't precisely see with optical data. We are looking at reflectance with optical data. So this becomes very relevant when we are trying to estimate biomass because uh, you know biomass is a is a volume i know that there are other parameters you know there are, i'm sorry other ways that we can use the optical data uh, to have some estimation but just at the physical level we there are different things so for biomass estimation it becomes very relevant and uh, that's another thing that you know really passions me like in theory we should be able to use it <laughs> right <laughs> Yeah, I absolutely agree. And, and you know, SAR has a lot of data, you know, compared to optical. But I, I, I have to admit, I use a lot of optical than SAR. It's just so complicated. Yeah, but I think that is, it has a lot of potential for the, to use with SAR um, because uh, even though in theory, I already mentioned all the benefits of SAR and how complementary is it is to optical observations actually in the in the practical sense when you start processing the information you will still face some some issues you know trying to apply the the maps derived may not be what you are expecting in terms of accuracy for some reason or another and i think it's just because it's different and coming from the optical remote sensing school we still had to train ourselves about how to think about SAR and uh, customize or create algorithms specifically for the processes that we are interested in, taking into consideration what SAR is looking on the ground. So can you tell us a bit about how you're using SAR for your research with Serbir? How does it help communities make better decisions? Yeah. Well, there are different areas that I am doing research. One of them is for water quality, and another one is for the uh, land cover and uh, land use change. Initially, we were the supporting with the disaster response. That's the way that we started using, and I started learning and applying more air observations 
for societal benefit and decision making. But you also realize through that process that uh, it's not the event itself, but actually the underlying condition of the vulnerability of the people is what is causing the final disaster. And uh, you realize that there are more preventive ways in which we can use satellite observations for the societal benefit that will allow these communities or governments to have a better planning. So the way they are living is not that they are not creating vulnerable conditions when the major event uh, occurs. So that's how we start focusing more on these We'll say a basic way of mapping, but that is relevant because it becomes like an input data set for everything. Everything that we do at Servir is based on needs and uh, what the uh, end users on the ground uh, are requesting. So in terms of like cover land use change, one of the main requests has come uh, for countries to fulfill the requirements of uh, these uh, national reporting mechanisms and to estimate the greenhouse emissions inventories in a more direct line has been also request from them to see where is illegal activity happening in protected areas. And uh, so we have put systems in place. Uh, first, uh, one of the most common ones so requested a lot has been for fires uh, inside of protected areas because fire is a very common practice associated with deforestation in Latin America and the Amazonia. So that's uh, for that land cover land just change. And can you tell me about your work on water quality? Um, I started working on, on this since 2009 when an algae, a major algae bloom happened in Lake Atitlan. Uh, Lake Atitlan is a biodiversity hotspot and a cultural landmark for Guatemala. It's the second most visited site in the country. It's beautiful. It's an Endorray watershed, which means like it's an enclosed basin that everything drains into the lake and uh, surrounded by volcanoes, pristine waters. And, uh, you know, it's just a beautiful area uh, that in the 70s, the transparency of the water was uh, about 20 meters. And can you imagine that is like uh, 10 floors of transparency? Wow. Yeah, it's just beautiful. And then suddenly an algae bloom happened. And that was major, uh, that covered almost 40% of the lake. So we started monitoring that uh, from beginning to end. And then algae blooms appear uh, almost every year. So I did analysis to monitor those algae blooms and develop an algorithm to estimate chlorophyll concentration as a proxy to algae presence on the lake. And uh, that's how my research started on that. And now I am forecasting algae blooms using a number of parameters. With all this research you're conducting, I'm just wondering, what drove you to pursue geosciences for your career? Something that really uh, drove my interest was to see the many natural resources that we had, that I had back in Guatemala, but that they were not managed well. And a clear example is the amount of surface water that is available in my country, but the water is polluted, at least from where I, when I was growing up. Uh, we have so many rivers, like just from my town to my house, which is like a five minutes, it's a three kilometer distance. There are like two, three rivers, small ones, but there are, there is a lot of surface water, but they were polluted the whole time. 
I remember my parents and grandparents talking about going to those same rivers, those exact places that I could see. They play, they fish, uh, they enjoy those resources. And I could no longer do it because they were already polluted. So that really caught my attention to see we have so much, but it's so badly managed uh, that I would like to to study something to preserve our resources. But I didn't know that uh, I could be a scientist, that you know, that you could live out of uh, doing research. You know, my mom told me something that uh, I cannot forget. When I was like maybe 12, 13, I don't know, I was realizing, oh, we are all growing up and uh, it's like that age where you have to eventually go to college. And I told my mom, mom, what are we going to do if we want to go to college? Like, I know we don't have money. And my mom looked at me and told me, I don't know what we are going to do with your brothers, but you are going to college. After the break, we learned how Africa's time in college was both a gift and a real challenge. Because believe it or not, this incredibly talented and hardworking scientist was bullied for being a woman on top of her game. Worldwide, women remain underrepresented in the STEM workforce. That's why the IDEA Committee of the IEEE Geoscience and Remote Sensing Society has developed a highly organized and incredibly rewarding mentorship program for women. Through this year-long program, mentors support mentees in setting goals, problem-solving challenges, and celebrating successes. For mentors, it's an opportunity to share expertise with the next generation. And for mentees, it can mean the difference between staying in geoscience or leaving the field. Before entering this program, I feel isolated from the community. Now I feel I can bring the benefit to others. Consider offering your expertise as a mentor or bringing your enthusiasm and questions as a mentee. Visit grss-ieee.org slash community slash idea to sign up. Welcome back. Today, we've been talking all things SAR with Africa Flores, research scientist at the University of Alabama's Earth System Science Center and Amazonia Science Coordination Lead with Serbir. As we learned, SAR is both incredibly difficult to use, but also very useful in Africa's research for land cover, land use change, and water quality monitoring in her home country in Guatemala. While Africa's passion for her country's natural resources is what drove her to pursue geoscience in university, the journey to completing her degree and becoming the incredible scientist she is today was rife with challenges. You mentioned that you didn't even know you'd become a scientist, but here you are. And I want to know, how did you become a scientist? I would say when I started college, you know, I think that you are put in a difficult a position when you are a teenager and you have to decide already what you are going to do for the rest of your life when you start college. Uh, I knew that I like uh, um, environmental sciences, but uh, I wasn't, you know, completely sure this is going to be my, my career field. Uh, I'm going to be completely honest. My goal was to become a professional. My goal was to, to be economically independent. Unfortunately, the woman in my family didn't have the privilege or the opportunity to go to school. I knew that I was given this opportunity and I have to take advantage of it because that was it. That was my opportunity to break the cycle of economic dependence that I saw 
and I had all the support from my family to do it. So that's what I started with college because, you know, was the, the first in my immediate family to go to college. My brothers and, and I were the, the first ones. And, uh, and we knew, you know, we really treasured that and saw it as a privilege and an opportunity. I would say a privilege uh, because that's not something that everyone had uh, or has in my country. And uh, as soon as I started, uh, you know, my focus was that that was my set of mind. So I really focused on my studies and uh, it went well. I was the first woman in my faculty to occupy the first place in the Dean list of honor. And that was, you know, I was happy, but it also became an issue for the rest of my career, of my undergraduate career, because uh, I have a lot of backlash because of that. And I suffer from bullying directly just because of that fact. And uh, that opened my eyes uh, that machismo exists because my, my faculty was agronomy, so it's a male-dominated career. It was a, a difficult uh, part of my life, but that I overcome. Like, I, I never even think about living because I knew that was my opportunity. So I had to work hard. And if I have to go through that, I will go through it because uh, that was way easier. Even though it was difficult for me, it's way easier than maybe other hurdles that other women have to go through and they are not even given the opportunity to study. So I was happy overall in my studies, but that was very difficult. It also made me realize, well, if I were a man, my achievements would not be, will not be questioned. And after that, you know, it lasted my whole career. At the end, I was like, be it, I don't care. If you are mad because I am good at school, what can I do? You know, I cannot focus on that. Uh, but, you know, the, the, harass, the harassment will be very, very strong. Um, and sometimes like even got to physical. And after that, I said, if I could go through this, I could go through anything. Wow. I can't believe you had to go through all that. Yes. So what happened next? Uh, I took an elective course on geographic information systems. And uh, that really drove my interest to keep working on geosciences, something geographical. Everything that I was doing is related to soil hydrological uh, resources and uh, forestry, I could put in a two-dimensional plane and uh, use it for some planification at a different perspective. And so I, I really love that. And I stay working on that and say, like, I want to keep working on this and I will do. And, and that's how I joined the skills that I have gained in the environmental sciences with geographical information and what eventually end up uh, for me using air observation data. And that was, you know, that was my first experience or the, with uh, obstacles in my professional career. Right. And then you moved to the United States, right? Yes. Did you experience obstacles there too? What was similar between the U.S. and Guatemala? Over there, it was a college and it was very upfront, right there. Here is more subtle. It is there, but it's subtle. It's like, you don't exist. <laughs> I like, you know, maybe you said something and uh, they don't take it into account, but then uh, a male colleague repeats what you just said and say so like, yes, what he said. As you are like, I just said that, I said that, he just repeated. 
<laughs> things like that. But obviously, after my previous experience, I said, like, this is nothing. <laughs> I'm fine. <laughs> um, and uh, I think that you learn and you adapt and you uh, understand that uh, maybe obstacles are going to be there. And I think that everyone faces obstacles. Men also face obstacles. You know, they, they may have their own. It may be different, but they also have them. And uh, uh, something that I have learned through this journey First is that obstacles are always going to be there one way or another because they haven't disappeared. Then the other one is the persistence on, on my part. We don't have to give up. We have to keep going. I think that the only time I have questioned to stay here because of all these issues or the, because, uh, you know, sometimes work can be overwhelming was when I had my first kid. Uh, and I said, like, my kid needs me. And uh, work is, uh, I'm frustrated right now, you know, it's tiring that you have to be proving yourself every single time. And it was through other colleagues, other female colleagues, other mothers. Then they told me, like, no, Africa, you cannot quit. You cannot. And uh, I stay, you know, I said, yes, I, we keep working. I will, I will continue. And that's... Uh, I was already starting to work on the SAR handbook. And uh, once I came back from maternity leave with my first baby, uh, we finished that. And uh, I wrote the proposal that finally got funded by National Geographic and Microsoft. And I'm, for me, it was a clear testament. It's like, we don't have to give up. I am admiring your strength, <laughs> honestly. Thank you. I see you as someone who makes hurt and bullying and all these obstacles as if you will to move further. And that's admirable of you. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I want to ask you, what carried you through all that you've experienced? What kept you strong? For me, something that is uh, that I uh, always keep in my mind and I go back and, and think is that my mom's story, my grandmother's story, will have been so different if they would have had the opportunities that they gave me. And they cannot tell that story because they didn't have the privilege to go to college to study. And uh, so I feel like a big responsibility to, to do well my job, to take, uh, to take this privilege and uh, to have the, some of the freedom and the privilege, the happiness, the fulfillment of a human being in all components of your life. I have that because of them. They sacrificed, you know, their their life and they, they didn't even have a chance. Another thing that influenced me and I, I, I hope that I can do it in the right way is to educate my daughter and to be such as the good mother that I had. I, I hope that I can be that for my daughter as well because the bar is very high. Uh, with my mom and I, uh, and I'm trying to be the best role model for my daughter as my mom was for me. You just made me tear up. Like, seriously, I'm so moved. I'm so emotional right now. I can feel you right here. And I know how big your admiration is to your mom. And that's so beautiful. Your mom is such an amazing person. And I know you will be an amazing mom to your daughter. Thank you. So... I want to know what's next for you. 
I see a world of possibilities in applying SAR for environmental monitoring. And so I want to keep doing that. And uh, I am just starting my PhD at McGill University, and I'm going to be doing that research there. And I'm very excited. That's next for me. So I hope, you know, to find a, a magical solution in which to say, you know, this is, this is the secret. So you can easily use a SAR, maybe in some combination with optical. Well, that's all for this episode of Down to Earth. For more information about Africa Flores and her research, connect with her on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Africa underscore science. Don't forget to follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And of course, send some love to our sponsors at IEEE Win GRSS on Facebook and Twitter and IEEE Women in GRSS on LinkedIn. This episode was produced by Nicole Bedford from Nicole Bedford Films with help from me, Stephanie Tumampos. Graphics and design by Mylene Griggs of Killam Media. And a special thanks to Heather McNairn, Sean Kipover, and Keely Roth for their support. I'm Stephanie Tumampos, and you've been listening to Down to Earth.